everyone. Welcome to New Slang. I am music journalist Thomas Mooney, your host, and this is episode number 93 with singer-songwriter Emily Scott Robinson. This episode with Emily runs about two hours, and so initially I thought about splitting it up into two parts, maybe running them back-to-back or something, but as you can tell, I obviously decided against that. So with that in mind, I'll try and keep this intro super short. You know, when I was talking with Emily, it just felt like the time really flew by. That always feels like a really great sign of a great conversation. And so when I was speaking with Emily, it just felt like any time we had a time where our conversation would naturally end, we would stumble upon a a bigger conversation piece or topic and then just kind of fall right back in it. And so like it, it just it felt like we never really ran out of things to talk about. So we recorded this back in April and we were still in the midst of the, I guess what I would call like the real shutdown. And I was just out of having COVID. So there's some of that talk as well, which I really hope y'all aren't getting too tired of. Um, I know it can probably be feel like it's just the same thing over and over but I I don't know it's just really been natural to talk with everyone about how they've handled this time in their lives but our conversation doesn't just revolve around that we really get into some great conversations about art and songwriting novels and short stories and we talk a lot about the aspects of her 2019 album Traveling Mercies which I thought was just one of the best albums of 2019 of really like that I guess, you know, the last 10, 15 years. One of my favorite subjects that we talked about is how Emily and her husband have been living in a travel trailer for the last few years. Um, I don't think like, I think we say something or she says something about how she doesn't technically consider it tiny living because they don't have a, it's not like technically a tiny home, but you know, it's as close, it's a lot closer to to tiny living than uh, living in like the house that I live in. So that's a really interesting conversation. And then, of course, like we also talk about like Marfa hipsters at the end. So that is, of course, something you'll want to hear. The appropriation of West Texas. Anyway, I said I'd keep this short. If you haven't checked out Traveling Mercies by Emily Scott Robinson, please do so. I'm a fan of always starting a record from the beginning. But if you really just need a sample, go ahead and go with the song Ghost in Every Town. If you haven't subscribed to New Slang just yet, please do so on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have an extra second, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. They are all really appreciated, and they really do help get more listeners to the podcast. If you haven't followed me on Twitter or on Instagram, I am at underscore newslang. Go give newslang a like on Facebook while you're at it. All right, here is Emily Scott Robinson. One of the things, I guess, like the... The thing I want to start out with is obviously we're um, we're in such a strange time right now with the quarantine and um, you're a touring musician, but you're also one who travels around in, in an RV. Like, I guess like um, my my first question is like, where did you guys just have to, were you guys out on the road when all of this started happening or um, were you guys already kind of like in a in a place that you were wanting to like kind of, I guess, park and settle a little bit? We were we were actually in a place that we wanted to park and settle a little bit. Um, so we were pretty lucky. We've been in Flagstaff, Arizona for the past couple months. Um, we found a nice little RV park in the pine trees that we have enjoyed. That's been a nice, like, peaceful home base. Um, mainly because we've been traveling and living full-time in our RV for 
over four years now. And so we'd sort of tired of, of being on the go constantly in the RV. And as my touring was picking up um, and the RV became a less economical touring vehicle <laughs> because it's just me. And so, um, and our RV is like a big, we you know, we live in it full time. So it's like a big land yacht. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's a 36 foot motorhome. So what we started to do is we live in the RV in these kind of cool and beautiful places that we love out West. And then I would just fly to a tour and do a, a big circle in like a rental car. And um, so we had our RV parked in Flagstaff and we'd actually just finished. Uh, my husband was with me on tour um, helping tour manage and merch and stuff. Um, we just finished a three week tour and flew back on March 9th, which was like just under the wire. It was just as, as people were starting to become aware of, of the coronavirus. And, Mm -hmm. and even about halfway through the tours, when I stopped shaking hands at the merch table and we started to do kind of the elbow bump thing. And, um, because God, it's, it's crazy to think about that. I, before this, I was, you know, I was hugging people. <laughs> I was right. like shaking hands. There was so much, uh, there was so much contact. <laughs> and um, so we were very lucky to get a big tour in right under the wire and then got home. And um, so now we're just hanging out in the RV in Flagstaff, Arizona. And it's, it's spring here, kind of turning into summer. And um, it's actually, it's been really nice to be home for this long. Um, all my shows have been canceled slash rescheduled, uh, up into the end of June. So I'm not sure yet kind of what's going to happen. Um, I'm supposed to go on tour with American Aquarium, uh, for their album release tour in June and July. So we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's so weird. Like you don't realize just how much contact you have with other people until they say stop, stop shaking. Cans. Oh my god! Stop. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I wear glasses, and um, I realize, like, oh my gosh, I touch my face all the time, just adjusting my glasses or taking them off, or you know what I mean. Like, there's just there's just so much that you do that you, if someone just tells you to stop, then you become hyper aware of how many times you actually do that, and it's it's hard, <laughs> you know. Yes, completely. I mean, I'm pretty sure like my hobbies before this were just like going to coffee shops and touching my face, which I cannot <laughs> do anymore. <laughs> so, oh man. Yeah. I, I never, you know, um, I, I like, like everyone never saw this sort of disruption coming in our industry and in our lives. And it has been really interesting. There's been a whole big mixed bag of emotions that I've felt. Um, most days I feel pretty positive and have tried to pivot to, uh, and, and am pivoting to a weekly online concert to really connecting with people online. And that's been great to be pushed in that direction because honestly, I wasn't comfortable with online concerts before this. I didn't like them. You know, I was like, Oh, well, there's so much magic in a live show. And there is, but that's not an option right now. So it's up to me to find the magic in an Instagram live show. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and um it feels good to have some sort of purpose during this time. Yeah. Um 
and providing music for people and connecting with fans on the internet has been, that's been my purpose right now and songwriting. And, um, so I'm just kind of trying to use this time as best as I can, you know? Right. Yeah. What I think like when you're, when you're touring and you're out on these dates, like there's a structure to it all. And like people are, even those people who aren't, you know, they, they clash with any kind of structure. Like, you know, you get into the rhythm of that. And this, I feel has just shaken everyone to realize like, Oh my gosh, if you're not doing something, you've, you're going to be like really lost during this time. And, and, you know, even just having that weekly show that some kind of normalcy, it it will give you purpose in, in what we're doing right now. You know, I could not agree with you more. Um, having finally, you know, I've, I've been on the learning curve of, of working for myself now for the past, um, almost five years. And since I quit my previous day jobs and having to create your own structure is really challenging. And one reason why touring is really fun is because I wake up every day and I know what my schedule for the day is. I know what the purpose is, you know, kind of what we're working towards all day and all night. And then at the end of the night, after the show is done, you have this feeling of like accomplishment. Um, and, and this also this direct feedback from fans almost every night of uh, mm-hmm. where they're, they're just, they're giving you all this love and they're so excited to see you and they've, you know, you've never actually come to their town and you're playing there for the first time. And they're, they're so thrilled to meet you at the merch table. And so you, there's this positive feedback on a nightly basis. And so I think what this time home has really taught me is that providing structure for myself is so important because I just, I just sort of flounder without it. I feel very depressed <laughs> if I have no purpose. And I think we thrive on structure. And so, um, Doing the weekly concert has been this wonderful. I mean, I'm jo- I joke about this, but it does it kind of give me a reason to shower and put on makeup <laughs> and do my hair. And, um, and it's amazing how much better I feel when I do that. <laughs> and uh, and also I've I'm in a in a small and intimate songwriting group where we're turning in one song a week, which is nothing crazy. Uh, we didn't want to set up set ourselves up to fail but we thought okay one song a week that'll be good so it's been it's been this great learning uh learning time for me of how do I give myself structure how do I structure my day because it's it's completely up to me and I'm we grew up in this culture I mean from the age of five when we went off to kindergarten all the way through college all the way through our sort of day jobs where somebody else gave us the structure for our day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so learning to do it on your own is, is, uh, it can be really challenging. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of those things where it's so hard to create responsibility for yourself. It's yeah. so hard to create the, the, any kind of like uh deadline, you know, one of the things that I, I had said this a couple of years back um, because obviously, you know, the, the freelance journalism aspect is very similar, similar in a lot of ways to, to being a musician. And, uh, at some point I, I realized, and you'll probably agree with this is like, um, 
the great thing about being a journalist or musician is that any night can be Friday night. The worst thing about being a journalist or musician is that any night can be Friday night. And you know what I mean? Like where that can, you can, you can change your plans and everything and go off and do whatever you want. But then also at the same time, like it can just totally mess up your entire week, you know? Completely. And also, I mean, I've, I find that setting boundaries with my own work has been a real, uh, a real challenge. Like taking an actual full day off from checking my email and just doing things that I enjoy that aren't music related um, is is really good for me. It is also really hard for me to do. Um, you know, when we're living our dream of doing what it is that we want to, um, I think that our identities very easily become enmeshed with our work. And so it's like, oh, you know, I got to use every day and every waking moment to kind of pour my heart and soul into this into this thing I've built, right? Um, which, you know, you also being a music journalist <laughs> um, probably relate to this. Um, and so feeling comfortable with taking a vacation, feeling comfortable with taking a weekend, giving yourself permission not to work uh, all the time. It's, it's really good medicine for me, but it's also hard for me to take my own advice <laughs> and take my own medicine basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I, like my father, he owned his own business and that was one of those things, I guess like with, with him was, it never felt like he ever took a day off. And yeah. I feel like me and my father are really not a whole lot alike, but I feel like if there's one thing, it's it's that aspect of like we never had a vacation where we weren't also doing like a slash business trip on his end, you know? Um, totally. And yeah, it's hard to just like go and just turn that off and not be the uh, the whatever your job is, you know what I mean? Like it, I guess maybe for if you're working a forty hour week, a quote unquote regular job, it can be easy or easier, um, to, to not think about what you're doing for work, you know, but I'm always constantly kind of thinking about music or like what I need to do tomorrow. Right. Exactly. Like when I worked for somebody else, it was like, Oh yeah. F the man. Like I'm not going <laughs> to think about this job on the weekend. Like this is my time, you know? And now I have this, this dream job, this life that I've built that I've created that I absolutely love and it's also really important for me to to have some sort of boundary with that where I can take a weekend and <laughs> go do mm -hmm. something that's not constantly producing. And I like going into reasons why I think this quarantine has been really challenging for people is that we have this notion in our culture that we've grown up with about productivity being deeply connected to our sense of self-worth. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I struggle a lot with that. And so I think that when people don't feel productive, they feel as if they're not worthy, that they don't deserve a break. They don't deserve to slow down. Um, and I think all, none of us are immune from that feeling because that's just in the air we breathe as a culture. And it's been so interesting to see this kind of collective halt to the insane pace of the lives that we've lived <laughs> myself included when I go on tour you know mm -hmm. um and to be forced to stop and slow down and reckon with our you know with the things that we run from <laughs> um to reckon with our own presence to reckon with quiet and silence and um 
you know, there are days where I'm, I, because I meditate and because I've been practicing this kind of stuff for years now, I feel like I have tools to reckon with the quiet and to reckon with the slowdown and to, and not to panic. But there's definitely a lot of people collectively panicking, melting down, drinking their way through this, numbing out. It's a, you know, this slowdown as a culture is really, is really bringing up a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think you hit the nail on the head right there because, um, I have like a, I have a little brother, but he's 14 years younger than me. So yeah. in a lot of ways, we're both like, we were both raised as like single children. And I've kind of jokingly said, you know, that um, my childhood has like, it, it's uh, made me perfect for a quarantine, like the isolation and like <laughs> being able to be busy on yourself. But the thing is, is like realizing just how many of your friends are completely not that way at all and how they are um, just needing so much human interaction and needing that, that like you said, like that aspect of, of work and uh, purpose. It, it's yeah. been very eye-opening to that part. And um, on my end, what that meant is meant is like, you know, more phone calls and more, you know, just talking with friends about like on the phone, you know, um, to not only just pass the time, but to also, you know, just make something happen in the day, you know? Yes. Yes, completely. And Thomas, didn't you have coronavirus? Yeah, I did. I did have, uh, Oh my gosh! it was absolutely horrible and everything like that. But, um, you know, like it's, I have such a, a conflicted, uh, thought about like the entire thing because on some on some aspects I feel like I'm complaining even though I don't feel like I was near I had it nearly as bad as as I could have you know what I mean so like I feel fortunate and feel like my complaining is is maybe like distracting from the actual problems of it um but at the same time like you know I I think that um it has helped open the eyes of a lot of my, I guess my circle. Cause like, yeah. it's one of those things where anything like this, you go, well, I don't know anybody who has had this, you know, whatever Completely. it is, you know what I mean? And, um, it does put like, I guess like a name and, and a face to the, the, the virus, if you will. Absolutely. I think that when we know, if you know somebody who's gotten it, it makes it that much more real. Whereas for me in Flagstaff, like I don't know anyone here locally who's gotten it and our numbers are still pretty low. And so my sort of sense of personal danger uh, is not incredibly high, even though I'm following all of the guidelines and we're like super staying at home. And, um, but I think that it, feels so much more real when there's somebody who's gotten it. And so I think that's, you know, um, yeah, that's, that's crazy. And you've fully recovered. Yeah. Uh, I mean like I've, I've recovered, um, to the extent that I, like, I still have a cough and I, I don't know if you can tell, but every once in a while I'll I'll mute my mic and cough off, (laughs) off, (laughs) but like, it's, um, it's one of those things where like they say like I could, you know, 
the the cough, the lingering cough can stick for a couple of months after this. And uh, yeah, it's one of those like, oh, that is just maybe the most annoying aspect. Oh of my all god, this. yeah, um, that sucks. That part was uh, like the the actual like the worst days were absolutely horrible. But the and I'm talking like the body aches and all that kind of stuff. That was absolutely horrible. But the the part I feel like that has messed with my mind more has been just the there was like a week after that I just was so tired, so sleepy, so uh I felt like a zombie. You know what I mean? Where it just felt yeah. like I couldn't stay up. And um and then the part where like when you um like the lack of taste was very like at at the very beginning I could tell like, oh I don't I can't taste it. Like that uh, is so fully. crazy. Yeah. And it, and it's not <laughs> like where you're like nothing tastes like nothing, but it's just like the most bland version of whatever that is. And you're just like, oh, what is, you know, what is going on here? But then also, you know, it was like, it wasn't until like that second week that I realized I couldn't smell anything either. And uh, unless it was like a ride up on you, you know what I mean? Um, right. So like those kind of things are kind of like the... Uh, you know, oh, you thought this was bad. Well, here, here's like an extra kick while you're getting back up, you know, <laughs> like just an insult to injury part. Like. <laughs> God, that's so weird. When I was first hearing about the like lack of taste and smell, <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, wow, what a crazy symptom. And I know that they're still, they're still learning so much about how right. this virus affects different parts of your body. And, um, but yeah, I remember when you posted on Twitter, you're like, so yeah, I had coronavirus mm-hmm. and it was awful. Um, yeah, like yeah. I, I had made a, a Facebook post earlier, like a week before that, or like maybe two weeks before that, I guess when I first started feeling bad and I was just, it was like a, don't be alarmed kind of thing. And, uh, I don't want to like scare anyone, but then you know, I, I felt bad and I couldn't get tested originally because I hadn't, I didn't meet the, the right, I guess, requirements. Cause I hadn't been out of the country, hadn't been right. in contact with anyone right out of the country. And this was like right when they started really testing and there was like no testing here really in Lubbock, you know, at the time. Right. And, um, so it wasn't until like a couple of weeks later when, um, I guess we could like really connect the dots to, to like uh, some patients or some pe- other positive tests uh, here in Lubbock. And at that point, though, it was already like I, what I've kind of described as like um, the, I don't know, like the participation trophy <laughs> or like a ribbon. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, yeah, like yeah. Passed, but then also you're kind of like, oh, okay, thanks. But I, I, there's also, I guess, an aspect of like an ease of mind, like, you know, right. a little bit of like a closing of the chapter, if you will, you know, like you, you get a little bit of like, oh, cause there was a little bit of me who was, that was thinking like, what if this isn't, what if this is just something else? And now like it's weakened your immune system to the point where you are going to get it. And, right. you know, but like you said, like there is so much we are learning. I know like on Sunday I was reading an article about, um, how like people in their thirties and forties are having strokes due to yeah. the, due to COVID. And it is, that is like another. Oh my God. That is some scary, just, yeah. scary shit. Yeah. <laughs> it is crazy. It's like, 
causing these big blood clots in people's bodies and and they're having these massive strokes it's um yeah it's really it's it's very weird it's very disturbing it's definitely really good motivation fear for me for staying home and <laughs> and mm-hmm. being really careful um yeah it's not so i'm glad that you were able to get a test and have that validated for you yeah. um it feels sort of like the wild west in general this whole experience of like <laughs> mm-hmm. every man for themselves yeah. in terms of in terms of testing it's just uh yeah it's crazy yeah it is it really is it's it's very um cuz it's one of those things where you know right I, I was like right whenever i guess we started having these like oh you know this is going to hit in two weeks, three weeks here in the U S and we need to be prepared and all that kind of stuff. You know, I was very much on the, Oh, we need to like, not necessarily, not the, I need to like stock up on toilet paper, but like, I, we need to get like prepared in real ways. And, um, so, you know, I was telling like my, my grandmother lives here in Lubbock and my mother lives here. And it was like, you know, I'll go out shopping for y'all. Yada, yada. And then of course, like <laughs> it's me who gets it. Um, oh, no. My grandmother got it and uh, oh, my God. grandmother got it. And it was where um, her, her, she's fine. Like she's, okay. she had it like way milder than me. And wow. um, yeah, but what it, how it comes out is like, there's some irony in this where I actually got it from her. And, um, despite thinking we would try and do it the other way around, you know, um, and it's because she, uh, she has her, she has a CNA business here in Lubbock, um, for, and so she was in a nursing home setting, I guess, like that first week of March. And then I got it from her at the end of that week or so. And or maybe the second week. Maybe it's either the first week. I, I can't remember exactly how we put it back as far as time, but it's either the first week or the second week. And then that next week, um, after three or four days of having no symptoms is when it first started uh hitting. So <laughs> it's uh Oh my yeah. God. Wow, that is wild. But um I'm so glad your grandma is okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I that's that's one of those things where I was like how, how did you have like a milder case? Uh, I'm yeah. I'm glad you did, but like, yeah, what, what's yeah. going on here? You know, um, oh, and that's where man. like, um, that's where one of those things where, yeah, we don't know anything about any of this, and I guess like we, it, it's probably naive and ignorant on my part, but I guess it's one of those things where I always just thought, um. The, the the quote unquote professionals knew about stuff even in in advance of when of this kind of thing happening you know what I mean but then it, right. it's scary and it, it's eye opening to go oh you know what like they're learning as this is happening in real time too completely yeah it's it's been really like the fact that there was so much community transmission going on before you know, before we even really knew that that was happening. And I just hope and pray that when I was on tour that I wasn't 
somebody who was unwittingly transmitting mm -hmm. the virus. Cause I have lots of, I also have lots of people in my fan base who are older um, and are in like the at risk category. And I was actually on Kayamo, the cruise um, with six man. And I was, we were on that in the beginning or the second week of February uh, or the, I guess it was the first week of February. And I'm I'm sitting here thinking like oh my god did I just go on like the last cruise for <laughs> for a while mm -hmm. um, and uh, they, we don't think there was any um, coronavirus on that cruise but um, you know a lot of most of the people the majority of the people on that cruise are at least over the age of fifty many over the age of sixty so <laughs> it's just a really um, yeah, it's been really crazy. And I also think in terms of like reopening things that because our business is not essential, you know, live music, that it's probably going to be one of the last things that comes back, you know, right? Yeah. Um, and, and coming to terms with that, accepting that, um, trying to kind of figure out ways in which I will work with that. It's just been, it's been interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the cruise thing is like, that's, that's scary too, just because of the, um, they have had the, the, the cruise ships that are, have been just like at port and no oh one's God. allowed off. And, um, these poor people yeah. stuck in like a purgatory mm -hmm. <laughs> of cruising. It's terrible. Yeah. The, I, I can't remember who it was. Um, there was some doctor doing an interview about that. And he was like, the first thing they should have taken everyone off the ship and put them in a hotel or something, because uh, there's a lot of, uh, shared air. You know what I mean? There's a lot yeah. of like, yeah. things like that, that are obviously everything's a little bit smaller, a little bit more compact. And it's, it's, that's like a, the breeding ground, you know, like right. putting them in a hotel where you're able to like, at least, um, it's probably a little bit more comfortable as well, you know, just, yeah. um, and I don't know, like there, that's, that is frightening in my opinion, <laughs> like being stuck Oh my God, terrifying. Like <laughs> Although, um, and this is kind of a side note away from coronavirus when, you know, speaking of like small cabins and stuff, you know, people were like, oh, you know, I, I was on Kayama, it was my first time. We of course get kind of like the most, um, basic cabin because I was, I won a contest. I was like on the bottom of the, of the lineup. <laughs> um, but of course it, this was on a really nice cruise line and people are like, Oh, get ready. You know, these cruise ships cabins are really small. I've been living in an RV for four years. So we get into the cruise ship cabin. We're like, Oh my God, this is awesome. <laughs> we, like, um, yes, a tiny bathroom where only one person can fit. We're super used to that. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, like a shower, like you would have on a boat. Yeah. That's like, that's what we shower in. So we felt very much at home mm -hmm. <laughs> on a cruise ship. It was so, it was so funny. Um, yeah. yeah so, I feel for the people who are stuck <laughs> in cruise ship cabins, though. This episode is sponsored by Smith Iron and Design. It's owned and operated by one of my good friends, Aaron Smith, and his dad, Sonny. As the name implies, Smith Iron and Design specializes in creating custom metal and woodwork. 
They have a vast array of metal signs that are perfect wall decor that'll tie our room together. They design everything from welcome signs to family crests, flags, and Texas cutouts. They have a series of these metal wreaths that are perfect for your front door, and you are able to change them out depending on the season. Are you a sports fan? Well, there's nothing better than having a giant logo of your team on the wall of your den or office. When it comes to signage, the possibilities are really endless. What you should really do, though, is head over to smithironanddesign.com to get a look at their vast portfolio. That's smithironanddesign.com. I'll throw a link into the show notes as well. They don't just do signs either. Some of the smaller items are custom bottle openers and keychains. Then they also have bookshelves, TV stands, nightstands, and fire pits. You know, it was about a year ago, Aaron built me a custom shelf. I needed something new to store some of my vinyl and everything I had come across. Either the shelves weren't big enough for LPs, or it looked too bland or cheaply made, or to be perfectly honest, too expensive. So I wound up talking with Aaron, and about a week later, I was able to pick up this custom shelf unit that's just been amazing. It's incredibly sturdy, has a bit of a rustic feel. In my opinion, one of the best parts was just having so much control in the process. You can get them as tall as you want with the shelves at the perfect depth and length. Again, for me, this was for storing vinyl, so they had to be a certain height and depth. I've been thinking about getting a custom bookshelf companion piece soon as well. Now, for the most part, they primarily serve the Lubbock area and the South Plains, but for some of their smaller pieces, they're able to ship nationwide as well. Again, smithironanddesign.com. Now back to the show. Tiny living, if you will. Um, I've always oh, kind of yeah. been interested in that kind of stuff, like uh, the the tiny homes and like the you know the RV living and all of yeah. the uh, the uh, I guess like there's obviously a lot of benefits and there's a lot of downsides too. Like if just depending on what kind of person you are. Um, totally. Is like, is, um, like, is I the, oh, absolutely oh, love it. Yeah, finish your question. Well, Sorry, I guess, like, ahead. what is, like, the the best parts and, like, the worst parts that, like, maybe okay. aren't, like, the the advertised parts? Like, you know what I mean? If you're just watching, like, a YouTube video or something like that. Totally. Um, well, so we chose an RV so that we could be mobile, um, which I would say tiny homes have become really popular and really trendy. Um, but tiny homes you know, a lot of people are sort of engineering them from scratch or from, you know, now there's companies making them, Mm -hmm. but it's great because living in an RV or living in a trailer is basically like living in a tiny home, but they've been designing these things for years and years. So you're not necessarily working. um, You're not necessarily like tiny homes are more expensive than trailers and RVs. And I, I am really partial to RV living because because you can move it easily, because you can, you know, tiny homes you have to put on a trailer and tow them somewhere. Um, and they're not really built for moving, um, whereas RVs and, and trailers are. So that's my little plug for for <laughs> RV living and trailer living, um, because I think that they're a little bit better suited. And you can hook them up really easily, um, and you can go lots of different places. Um but tiny living in general, um, we love because it's really simplified. Uh, it has really simplified our possessions. And so everything that we have in the RV 
we we just really love. We everything has its space. It's really easy to keep clean and organized because we don't really have a choice. If stuff is out and about, it's in the way, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it's really made me like a much cleaner and more organized person. And we just we tend to sort through our clutter. If we, we, I mean, we like anybody will accumulate things we don't need. And we have a couple drawers where like random odds and ends end up going. And then every couple months we go through them and go, oh yeah, why do we have this? Okay, let's get rid of this. And so it's really, it has really simplified our life and made us very, very happy. Um, and I think now that we've done it for four years, um, we are we're looking to move into an an actual home again. Um, you know, a house that's not on wheels, um, because we've been doing it for a while and, um, it's been an amazing adventure, but I don't want more stuff. (laughs) I'm just like, I don't want a whole lot more stuff and I definitely don't want clutter. And so I think something that's really gotten clear to me is that I like the simplicity of just having, a smaller amount of things where I open my closet. It's very Marie Kondo-y, I guess. Um, right. And I love everything that I have in there. I love, I have this one coffee mug that I drink out of every day and it makes me so happy. It's this beautiful piece of pottery that I got years ago when I was in, living in El Salvador. And it makes me so happy. And I'm like, why do I need more than one coffee mug? <laughs> I just simply do not, you know? And so, I mean, you know, I have more than one. But <laughs> um, I would say that that simplicity of living um, has really has really been wonderful. It's just brought us a lot of joy and clarity. Um, but I would say there's also some, like, there's also some downsides I mean, I think people really romanticize RVing Um, and it takes a lot of energy to constantly be packing up and moving around, which is why from the get-go, we were like, okay, well, we're going to spend at least a couple weeks at a time in most places because um, it takes, yeah, it just takes a lot of energy to drive and move and, and like um, pack everything up and then like get settled back in again. And we've done it a lot. We've done it for four years, but, um, whenever I see like an, an RV pull in and it's clearly a couple who's just out for the weekend doing it. And I watch them try and do all the things that you have to do to set it up and (laughs) get it leveled and set up your, your sewer and like everything. And I just look at it and I go, Oh my God, it's so exhausting. (laughs) It's so exhausting. (laughs) It's so not romantic. The worst fights that my husband and I have ever had is when we were setting up the (laughs) RV after a long day of travel, you know, we're just like, just fighting bitterly over whether it's level enough in the front or the back. (laughs) And, And, um, so it's, I think, you know, it can be easy to romanticize. There's also a lot of maintenance and I have to put in a plug for my husband who does all the maintenance himself because he does not, he does not want to pay anyone else to do it. He doesn't trust anybody else to do it. <laughs> and he's just that kind of person. And so he's taught himself through the myriad of YouTube videos, like how to reseal the roof and deal with leaks and how to change the oil in a V10 engine and, and how to like keep the generator, um, you know, primed and, and, and all these little things. And he's totally, a perfectionist about these things. And, 
and it's become his his job basically <laughs> since I'm the one working on the road and I'm the one touring and so there's a lot of work that goes into keeping them up because it's like I mean, can you imagine what would happen to your own roof on your house if you were just like constantly moving your house around? Right, yeah. So he's sort of in this like um, epic battle with the forces of nature (laughs) and water and leaks. (laughs) So yeah, it's not not super easy. It takes its own kind of maintenance. Um, But it's been so much fun. really I'm really attached to it and the I realize I have I have like lots to say about this but um the other nice thing is that since we're a married couple and we wanted to do it for a long period of time we didn't move into a van because we were like oh my god we can't live in a van forever I mean we just have too much gear I have too many guitars and we have vinyl and cds and like all this stuff and so um it was important for us to get a big enough rig that we could comfortably live in it and have space from each other. And so we have, it's a 36 foot class A, it's got two slide outs, it's got tons of storage. We tow our car behind it. Um, and, and probably most importantly for our marriage, we have a door that we can close in between the bedroom and the main room mm-hmm. of the RV. And so, um, that's how we get space. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like I close the door when I'm writing and meditating and doing my online concerts. And, um, you know, Roos will put his headphones in and uh, Roos is my husband and um, and cook dinner in the main room. And so but people I mean, we cook more than we ever have in an actual house. We cook so much for ourselves. And um, we just I do think we've we've really enjoyed the simplicity of tiny living. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's been good. Yeah. You talking about the, I guess like the setting up and like the leveling and stuff that's going to bring back some childhood trauma. Uh, Oh my God. (laughs) I am sure. uh, Actually, you know what's, what's, I guess like the, the last, I don't know, about four or five years I've been the, the, the quote unquote, the person who's like in charge of any kind of family vacation stuff and, yeah. Um, organizing that kind of stuff. Like I, I'll actually, it's super nerdy, but I kind of like doing that kind of dumb stuff. But yeah. um, then getting out on the road, like I have never felt, um, I guess, like closer to my dad in those ways, in those moments where it's like, oh, you know what? No wonder dad was always pissed off and in a bad mood on vacation. Because <laughs> you're actually like... <laughs> It's uh, everyone else is on vacation and you're the one doing all the setting up. Oh my God. <laughs> that is, <Completely>. uh, <laughs> that's the situation, you know, it's the, <laughs> yes. But, oh my God. Um, that's so funny. Yeah. The, I guess like one of the, the bigger benefits of, I, I, I'm going to, we're going to, I think we're, we're going to move off <laughs> the, 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 the small living here in a second, but that's I guess like, fine. you know, one of the bigger uh, well, I just want to get into the songwriting with you too, because obviously you're a songwriter. But um, oh, yeah. I guess like one of those benefits that is is talked about a whole lot um, for the small living is that it pushes you outdoors. Um, yes. I saw you post yesterday about riding, uh, cycling. Um, yeah. How much more of that do you, do you have you wound up doing? Uh, just getting out in nature and 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 being out in the elements. 
So, so much. And I think my husband and I would both agree on this, that we are happiest in the RV when we are um, kind of out camping, like on national forest or public lands. Um, we're hooked up right now in an RV park because I need internet for what I'm doing. And um, we kind of wanted to be close into town. The nights are still cold. It's a little, it's a little too much work to just be um, camping with no hookups right now. But um, we just, I was like, there's nothing kind of more blissful than just being like parked in the trees or in the mountains and, and having all the windows open and, and feeling like you're basically sort of living outside. Um, but with the shelter and the amenities that you would want uh, in a home. And I just, it's like, it's so nice to just sit outside in the morning in a chair and do my journaling or do my meditation. Um, my husband goes outside every morning to do his meditating. Um, I'm sitting outside right now. I, I go bike riding a lot. Oh my God. Especially now during quarantine, I have so many hours to fill. I'm just like, okay, <laughs> where should I explore today? Um, it's, it does really put you out in nature. Uh, if you choose that. Now there are plenty of RVers who are sort of like what I might call like the classic American RVer who have like <laughs> giant TVs and these like huge expensive RVs and they just pick an RV park and they set up and they turn on their air conditioning and they just sit there and watch TV. Like that is definitely a thing. <laughs> that is not our thing. <laughs> we're not into that, but um yeah, right now we're in this RV park that's just got like lots of pine trees and it's peaceful and there's trails around that are pretty accessible. So um, it's got just kind of enough of nature for us to feel to feel good. But it's awesome. I I spend so much time out walking, out hiking, out um, riding my bike, and it's it's also because we only have one car. Um, it's also that kind of forces us, which I like, it kind of forces us to, um, to explore on foot and explore on bike more. Um, so that's really nice. Um, and that's another thing I'm like, will we ever need more than one car again? Like, I mean, <laughs> neither of us have nine to fives. So, <laughs> so getting down to that kind of simplicity of just having one vehicle that we tow behind and, um, and managing our days around, okay, do you need the car? Do I need the car? Me choosing to take my bike to go to the post office or take my bike to the, go to the grocery store. It's, um, it keeps me a little more active, which I just, I just like, you know, and it's greener. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, does like, I guess like those, those moments when you're, you're, you are out biking in, uh, the traveling aspect of going from point A to point B, uh, how much does has that affected? I guess your songwriting. How does that help it? Does it make it more, um, for lack of a better term, is that like a a different version of of the shower thoughts where you're just like thinking yes. about stuff? Oh my god, yes, completely. When you're doing something else that doesn't require a whole lot of your mental energy, and you're sort of in a flow state with it, like riding a bike or showering or even washing dishes or just wandering around for a walk. That's when I get most of my song ideas. Honestly, I got a song idea while I was washing dishes this morning, right before you called me. Um, and I, I have found that if I say I'm going to songwrite today, I'm going to write a song today. And I sit down 
to a blank page and I'm just sitting there that I have a hard time creating and generating ideas. And I also, um, if I do generate something, it's usually not brilliant. (laughs) Most of my sort of most emotional or inspiring songs and creative ideas come to me while I'm doing something else. Um, and then, then I do need to go sit down with a notebook and get those ideas down. But I, my, you know, my voice memos app is full of all kinds of, all kinds of ideas that I've gotten while I was hiking or while I was just out doing other things. Um, and I, I really believe in that, like, Oh, do I want to write a song today? Okay, I really I really want to sit down and write today. Okay, well, I'm going to start my day with a cup of coffee and a nice long walk because that's like the best way for me to start getting ideas going as if I'm moving, mm-hmm. doing something, just like moving my body or even just like doing stuff with my hands. <laughs> right. Yeah. The I guess like the the sitting down without like any preparation and just starting to do do the writing that's like an entirely separate tool set you know what I mean like that's a different kind of toolkit um because I I always compare it to what I do that is absolutely hard to do is just like stare at a blank page and start writing an article without oh my god so hard idea you know (laughs) um yeah I can imagine it being the exact same thing being a songwriter you know um just having that initial spark to set whatever off, you know? Yeah. I think it's like, it's the kind of thing where like you have to come at it a little bit sideways. Um, and I think, um, I don't know if you've ever done this, but like sometimes if you're looking at like a, if you want to see a star in the night sky, if you're staring straight at it, you can't, it kind of like, disappears or it's like hard to see clearly if you're staring straight at it. But if you look a little to the left or right or a little to the side, um, you can see it better. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I sort of think of songs that way is that it's hard sometimes to look at them head on and say, I'm going to conquer you and get you down on paper. (laughs) Um, And it's more like, I sort of, it's almost like a wild animal. I can't look, I can't look it straight in the eye. (laughs) I need to like approach it from the side. (laughs) Um, And I mean, songs do feel like, like they have their own lives and kind of their own um, ideas in general. Um, Writing ideas feel like they have their own sort of um, energetic uh, soul to them in a way, their own kind of life and their own sort of, um, purpose. And, um, I, I think it, it helps me a little bit to think of them that way. Um, because then I'm not sort of necessarily putting all this pressure on myself to generate and to birth something. It's more like, um, Oh, look, this song idea exists. Um, let me sort of, uh, let, you know, let me sort of like hone it and see if I can see what, what it might want to say, um, you know, maybe I can kind of sculpt this out of the raw elements <laughs> that are coming to me, you know? Um, and I think that, that that works a little bit better for me thinking about it that way, because I mean, ultimately we're not, none of us are writing anything new. 
we're writing it in new ways. We're telling our stories often, mm-hmm. but like, you know, love, grief, the human experience, um, you know, satire, none, there's like, there's nothing new under the sun where we're writing all of these things um, that have already been written in different ways. And so in some ways I do think we're sort of sculptors of that, which exists in our natural world already. Um, And we're like observers in a way. Yeah, I, I absolutely. Um, I think like in a lot of ways you can, you can boil it down to like the Shakespearean aspect of, comedies and tragedies right yeah what something is I think like I can't remember exactly what he said there's a podcast I did with Radney Foster and he's he said something he was absolutely brilliant the entire time but he had said about how like there's only like four or five different songs and (laughs) um, maybe there was two maybe it was two and it was I can't remember what it was I know like two of them were um like love songs, like about love in general, like just you either love something, right? Or like you're falling out of love with somebody or something or whatever that case is. And then like spiritual uh, songs about like finding God or like needing God or like, I think that's what he had said. Um, Something to that effect. Maybe there's something else. I don't know. I can't remember. Um, But yeah, I, I do think that there is this, no one is, uh, telling you a story that is is completely new it's about how you tell the story there's that aspect of like that's what makes a songwriter a songwriter is is the the storytelling part of you being able to put your your impression on it you know um I I just think that's what 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 I guess what makes I, I guess like the analogy one of my buddies always talks about is like how you know the the guy working in the coal mine has all these stories, but he's not able to like, he just can't like pick up the guitar and tell you these stories in, in right. song form. So it takes like somebody else to hear those stories and then be able to put them into a way that you go, Oh my God, you know, like what? That is amazing. You know what I mean? That aspect. Uh, there, there's something about, about that. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's something really powerful about it. And I um, I think, you know, we've always had this this role in society of the of the artist, the the storyteller, the you know, the person who the troubadour, like the person who tells our stories back to us and the person who witnesses what's happening. Um, and I see it as a as a role of great privilege um, for me. And I feel like I have a responsibility with it, actually. Um, And I was listening to one of the things that's been getting me through the quarantine with, like, lots of joy is um, that I I really love the writer Cheryl Strait. She's um, she's sort of this, like, I I self-proclaimed for me, like, teacher for me. (laughs) Um, And I love her writing. And I also just love the way she exists in the world. She started this podcast called um sugar calling she used to she used to do a um advice column but now she's sort of doing the reverse and under quarantine she is calling these these writers and all of them are over the age of 60 so she's calling these older writers and she's asking them about what they're doing and how they're handling this experience and asking them to share their wisdom 
And she had a, uh, the very first one is with George Saunders and it's wonderful. And <laughs> it just makes you feel, if you're a writer or a creative, um, you know, I really recommend you listen to it, but he's, he's telling the story of a Russian poet who is, um, waiting in line to see her husband in prison, uh, during the like Russian civil war or the Russian revolution. And, um, sh- this woman is a poet and, and another woman turns to her and, and says, poet, can you write this? Can you write this? <laughs> and she says, yes. And it's like everyone is collectively recognizing that what they're in is an absolute, um, they're in this like pivotal moment in history um, where many people's uh, rights are and stories are being erased. Mm-hmm. And they need somebody to witness it and they need somebody to put that down. Um, and I, I think that that's our job. I think it's our job. And I, I understand if people don't feel creative during quarantine, I am not the person to tell you what you should do with your time in quarantine, but I've been finding that, uh, when I read the accounts of other writers who lived through world war two, who lived through tremendous traumas, um, I'm inspired by them and I'm inspired by, I love Eudora Welty and uh, she's an incredible Southern writer who um, I think was kind of underrated compared to Faulkner. Um, But I've been reading her biography slowly over the past year or two. (laughs) I have it on my bedside table, but she's, you know, all the men that she loved and was close to in her life went off to Europe and fought during World War II. And she had months at a time where she did not know what was happening to them, whether they were alive or dead. And she was just back at home. And she and her mom were, um, were like making things that they could for the troops, (laughs) sewing things, making socks, I don't know, and uh, volunteering at the Red Cross. And then she was just doing everything she could and writing. And she was writing through that time. And uh, in her letters, she expressed desperation and she expresses her fear and her anxiety. And yet she's also just trying to plug along and do her work. And I was like, oh, my God, if you Dora Welty could write through World War II, I can write through this. You know, I can do this. Um, This is this is my job. I feel called to write about this. I feel called to do this, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is something about the. Um, I, I, there was a lot of people who were c- kind of talking about, oh, well, at least good art will happen um, post uh, Donald Trump being elected. And I thought that was kind of yeah. like a, you know, like, oh, come on, guys, really? This is probably not the time to say that. But there is something to, um, you know, like the 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 culture, the, the, the what's written out of tragedy is always... Um, it, it captures the the human emotion so much better than when we're quote unquote happy with everything, you know, like yeah. the, um, like even like the, like the Southern writers have always just been really great at, at capturing, uh, how bad we feel about our, uh, <laughs> about everything. Uh, yes. <laughs> the, our dark and sordid mm-hmm. history. Yeah. The, uh, <laughs> I guess like the the two people I've been kind of turned on lately have been uh, Larry Brown and Tim O'Brien, and they are like yeah. Southern writers, uh, uh, who I guess like come out of the 
the Vietnam era kind of way, and they just capture the the raw emotions of of uh, of the human element, the human condition, and like the what I I feel like more than anything else, like the best kind of writers pull the the conflicting emotions of of a timeout, you know the uh the how you can feel guilty for for your own actions even though they're maybe uh justifiable in some ways yeah i think um i think the songs that have been the hardest to write for me but also the most powerful where i sort of understood the thread of truth that needed to be told all of those contain um conflicting emotions they contain like sometimes things just happen to us in our human experience that we just they're not fair and we just have to learn to live with them and we have to learn to carry them um however we can um and uh you know traumatic things terrible things um and i think that just sharing the truth of that, um, the truth of the fact that our world is often a very scary and just difficult place to live in, that being a human is, is <laughs> that, that being a human and experiencing the entire human experience is something that like, uh, is maybe like feels to many of us often like a raw deal that we didn't realize we were signing up for when we were born. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> really? This is part of it. This is part of it. This isn't fair. I don't want this, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think those songs written out of, I think there'll also probably be a lot of really crappy songs <laughs> that are written <laughs> uh, during the Trump era and really crappy songs that are written during quarantine because a lot of times like crappy songs just help us. <laughs> just help us process our own crap <laughs> and that's okay yeah um I'm, I'm like laughing because i i've been writing a song a week and you know i'm just coming the longer that i write songs the less i actually feel i know about songwriting i feel as if the deeper i go the more i feel like a beginner which is actually like a really beautiful place to be in because it's kind of scary to have to live up to the idea that you, that you're an expert at anything. <laughs> and so I think the more I explore the world of creation and songwriting, the more I feel like kind of a newborn in it. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of this nice feeling. I feel like I let go of my expectations about output. And the other day I was meditating and I was like, I got this message in my heart that said like, you just need to trust your output. Like if you write, 20 songs during quarantine and one of them is good just trust that like the rest of them they were just they needed to come too but they may not be worth making it on, on an album and that's okay right you know? yeah that's totally okay uh because i think in some ways i need to have this healthy boundary between i need to protect my creative space where i don't put the pressure of selling records and being a fully produced song onto every fledgling song that wants to be born. Because if I said to a newborn song idea, okay, so one day I want to play you at the Ryman and you're going to be my new single and you're going to sell this many copies and make me this much money. Well, that's not, that's not a weight 
that that baby song can bear yet, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like, and then, you know, and then it just kind of runs away scared and I never end end up finishing it. And oh my God, that's happened to so many of my songs. (laughs) So it's like, um, kind of having a healthy boundary between like, um, the business side and the creative side. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The, you know, like it's the, it's the whole, I guess, the old uh, saying of about how like the the more you know the less you or like I, the more you you learn the more you realize like the less you know kind of thing just yeah. because you there's just no way to know everything right and um, yeah I, uh, another thing though is that the whole you know you talking about how songs not every song's gonna get made into on the record kind of thing and um, one of my buddies the other day had said, you know, like they, they, they can't all be, you know, Poncho and Lefty. They can't all be, you know, they, they, they all can't like, uh, just rip your heart out, you know, <laughs> like right. so you, you can't do like, if I guess you can, but it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, you don't have to do that. Yeah. I like, for me, when I put this song on my new record, the pie song, it's like right in the middle of the record. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my husband, you know, generally gives me what I would consider like, uh, I don't take feedback, songwriting feedback from many people and I don't invite it from many people. I just really take it from people I trust. And my husband, who's not a songwriter is often my best measure of like whether a song makes sense to a standard audience member, you know? Um, and, so, and, and whether my story is clear and whether it has emotional strength. And so when I finally play a song for him, so it, I, I value his feedback and, uh, he was like, yeah, I like the pie song. It's pretty good. You know, I don't know why you play it every night. I mean, it's a good song. It's fine, but it's not like, you know, the dress or it's not like overalls. It's not like your bigger songs. And I said, I know that's why I have to play it. It's my little song. It's like a little song. Mm-hmm. It just goes right in the middle. And it's about baking pie and a broken heart. And it's pretty country. And and it, and it it serves exactly the purpose it needs to fill, which is it's not this epic song about um, love or death or, you know, um, the human experience. It's just this, like, little vignette of life. And, it, and it's exactly its right size and it's exactly in the right place. And I think some of my songs, you know, they take up more space. They're a little bit bigger than some of my other songs. And that's okay. That's correct. That's right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. There, There is an aspect of, of having, especially like on a record or in a show, having a, um, in a way, like a palate cleanser. Like a, like we yes. have to break the, the, uh, I don't want to say mood, but like you have to like, kind of like, okay, like that was a very serious moment. Let's break these uh, serious moments up into pieces where like, Oh my God. Yes. um, Yes, yes, yes. People need room to breathe. mm -hmm, Yeah. Well, it's that. And then uh, it's also the, um, sometimes like you can, I, I, I think like attention spans are obviously like, shorter than like we ever realize and you know you don't want to just hit them all with these heavy hitter moments and I guess like maybe where they all run into the same thing 
You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Um, I, so this is something that I care so much about <laughs> in my live shows. <laughs> now on my Instagram shows, I tend to kind of just <laughs> take requests as people ask for them, you know, but mm-hmm. when I'm crafting a set list and I'm, I'm somebody who has always been like very much a people person and I can sort of sense how people are feeling. Uh, I'm really sensitive to the way in which others are feeling. And I think that's what made me, (laughs) that's one thing that makes me a good performer because I pay really close attention to the audience's experience because this is a, this is an act of service really. And, um, the show, yeah, I'm the one on stage, but it's not about me. It's about the audience's experience. And so I pay so much attention to crafting a set list and crafting moments of laughter and moments of release and breathing. And I tell funny stories sometimes in between sad songs. And I just make sure that I'm not hitting them too hard mm-hmm. because my songs are pretty, a lot of my songs are really potent. Um, and really powerful and bring up a lot of tears and they're intense. Uh, and I don't avoid those things, but I do make sure like, I don't play my song about sexual assault and my song about domestic violence in the same show. I usually just pick one of them (laughs) because good God, Um, Mm -hmm. I don't want to like flay people open and leave them bleeding on the floor. And so I just really... I pay so much attention to that in a live show. And when I've written a set list, but I sense that it's it's become too heavy in the room, I will go, oh, okay, you know what? I'm going to throw in this one now, this lighter song, so we have some room to breathe because I just sense that it's just too heavy. And I may have thought back in the green room, like, oh, I should play these two songs back to back. And then I'm on stage and I can feel it. And it's not right. And so I'll switch it up a little bit. Um, I think... You know, sometimes I see performers and they maybe have been performing for many, many years and they're burned out and they're doing this for reasons that are different than my reasons for performing live. But I I will often see performers, not often actually, once in a while, I'll watch a show where I feel like the performer is being very selfish and they're kind of up there just like, going through their motions and they're just kind of thinking about themselves and they're not thinking about the audience. Um, and for me, audience engagement and sensitivity to an audience's experience is, is my priority when I play a live show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, there's these, there's moments that you have to kind of like break that tension, you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, of a, of a room and, and make it, you do like, like you said, you don't want, you want them to also walk away, like knowing that they had a, had fun too at the same time. Oh Even God, though yeah. like these moments are can be incredibly, you know, like you said. This episode is sponsored by Wicker's Mesquite Smoked Jalapeno Jelly. It's owned and operated by my buddy Wes Wicker, who makes the jelly in small batches for the best quality and freshness. He smokes the peppers with mesquite and uses pure cane sugar to make the jelly. What you get is this great blend of smoky, sweet, and spicy. It's addictively savory. For those uninitiated, Wicker's is a great addition to any chef's kitchen. Part of what makes Wicker's so great is just how versatile it really is. For starters, it makes a great meat glaze. Throw it on a batch of hot wings, 
Use it on some pork ribs, some pork chops, really whatever you can think of. Eat it on biscuits, cornbread, bagels, or toast. Throw it on a ham or turkey sandwich. Another super simple but effective way is to get some cream cheese, throw some wickers on top, and then grab your favorite cracker. Wickers is currently stocked at a handful of places in Lubbock and on the South Plains, as well as some Fort Worth and DFW locations. But the easiest way to get your hands on a jar is to head over to wickerstx.com. That's W-I-C-K-E-R-S-T-X.com. I'll throw a link into the show notes for good measure. They currently come in two varieties, original and now hot, if you need just a little bit more kick in your bite. You can order anything from one jar to a case of 12, whatever fits your needs. Again, that's wickerstx.com. Okay, back to the show. I I guess like that just really jumped out um, in your songwriting that I felt was like these songs just really live uh, or feel really lived in. They feel like there's the, like they, you know, that you took a whole lot of time, that these weren't just, uh, you know, five minute rights or not even necessarily that, but like, or anything like that. But if they feel like they've been around, um, in your head or like on, on the paper for a while and that you've been working doing that, you know what I mean? They feel just very lived in. Mm, Thank you. I appreciate that. And they really, they really are. I wrote them all myself. I didn't have any co-writers on this album. Um, and so, uh, yeah. And they came from several years worth of writing. (laughs) And so, um, yeah, they really are. They're very lived in and they're fully embodied. Um, and yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just, I don't know, like the, like the, for example, like just even like westward, westward bound, like from that top of, you can just feel the, uh, you going westward and it feels like you, it wasn't like you were sitting somewhere else and going, how does one go westward and start like, picking up towns, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? On the map or something. It, yeah, you right. know, it's like, these are signs on the, on the, that you've seen out the window and like you've been in these places, you know what I mean? Like that's what they feel yeah. like. Um, yeah. Specifically on that song, they, like where was like, where were you kind of driving from? Yeah. Know? I mean, oh, so that song is like one of my favorite songs to perform. It was just like, it's probably honestly my favorite song on the album. Um, and when I wrote it, I was sitting in Telluride, Colorado and that's where I used to live. And we've been going back there every summer ever since. That's where my husband and I met and got married. But um, so I was really just thinking about that fresh feeling of traveling west and just the energy that that holds has always held for me because I've, I've moved out west in my life three different times um, from back east in North Carolina to Colorado or to the west and um kind of through my 20s and so it just it was like it held this kind of fresh energy and this freshness of a new start and and then I like writing the lyrics was pretty easy ultimately because I I have done all those things I that feeling of like letting go of the weight of your past 
and just leaving it behind. <laughs> like I sold everything and I packed up my car and I just went. Um, and driving through, I mean, um, God. So I I took snippets of those lyrics from different point from different journeys of mine. Like they're not all one mm-hmm. trip that I made, but the um the West Texas, the second verse about stopping for breakfast, it was, it was funny because my dad, my dad was helping me move out uh, to Colorado the second time that I moved out there. And uh, he was helping me with the drive and we stayed in Amarillo for um, New Year's Eve. <laughs> it was so, so funny. We ate at a, um, at a, Texas Roadhouse for New Year's Eve. <laughs> uh, it was a, an amazing, like, just moment in time where I was like, I'm always going to remember this weird New Year's Eve that we had. Um, but then the next day, we we it was a Sunday, and we got up to finish the drive, and we were looking for a place to have breakfast. And my dad is always somebody who has kind of eschewed, es- eschewed, uh, I think that's how you say it, or eschewed skewed um gps he hates gps so so we just use we use roadmaps and he his whole thing is he loves to get on the on the old u.s highways the old route um out west and and so we tried to do a, a like a bit of that and we were looking for a place to have breakfast and he goes okay well let's just get off on on the u.s highway and get off i-40 and start driving and it's a sunday morning so let's just go wherever all the cars are and I was like, oh, and he goes, yeah, Sunday morning crowd. Like, that's where we want to eat. <laughs> and so we were somewhere. I'm not even sure where we were. We were somewhere in the panhandle and stopped for breakfast at this little diner. And we opened the door and heads turned. It was like a record scratch. People were like, who are these people? Mm-hmm. <laughs> How did they get here? <laughs> it was great. It was such a wonderful moment. And I thought about um, – you know, I think I finished. Okay, let me think. I think I finished that song around the same time that my husband and I had spent some time in New Mexico in our RV. And I'd seen we'd been in a little market because this town, Fort Sum, Fort Sumner, New Mexico, doesn't really have an actual big grocery store. It just has a little market. And I saw this old man come in, in his car hearts, and he's got like, he's clearly been like a farmer or rancher for 50 years. Uh, and I thought about how car hearts are so cool now. And and I looked at his car hearts and I was like, this is like the last man who's wearing car hearts. This generation of men who's wearing car hearts because they're good working clothes, you know. Right. No, granted, I know there's still people who, who wear car hearts all the time for good working clothes. But I just, you know, he's not wearing them for style or for fashion. <laughs> and I just, I looked at him and his big Coke bottle glasses and I tried not to stare, but I just loved him so much. I loved that man so much. And I was thinking about the life that he had lived. I mean, he straight, in, straight up came in dusty, like, to this market. And um, and that's really, like, who I was putting down at that at the diner, you know, the old men who are getting together still every morning and having their coffee. Um, you know, maybe they're retired. Uh, and that's, like, that's their that's – their, group and the waitress knows them all <laughs> so i just i just feel so much fondness and love for these 
pieces that have been forgotten or left behind. They've not been forgotten or left behind by everybody, but by sort of the mainstream, the fast pace of our more modern world, like these places that the interstate is left behind. Like, I just, I think there's so much there. Yeah. There's so much there. Yeah. The, the Carhartt, like I still have jackets from high school that are like in perfect condition. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's something in, uh, I, I always remember, um, like my parents buying me stuff and just being kind of like, Oh, this isn't cool at all. You know? And then yeah. you know, like 15 years later, um, you know, you looking on Twitter and Instagram and whatnot and you're like, uh, I had that, like, but for like practical reasons, you know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> oh my God. What's... It just, it just kills me when I see these like LA cowboys. I just hate them so yeah. much. Thomas, I have so much judgment in my heart <laughs> and I hate them so much when I see these, like, I think I too had like just gotten back from Americana Fest, which I love in Nashville, which is wonderful. I have lots of friends in Nashville and Americana is great, but there's always this like, freaking contingent of like LA cowboys and I watched somebody get up on stage and and I heard them they talked to me at the merch table because they were like going on after me and I heard this performer get up on stage and put on this accent that they did (laughs) not have when they talked to me and I was like go back to where you came from (laughs) LA cowboy like get out of here like with your freaking Levi's and your super expensive embroidered jacket and your hat that you paid $500 for, like this appropriation of cowboy culture. I know I don't have to, to preach to you about this because you live in Lubbock, but mm-hmm. it's just is so, it's so, it, I just hate it so much. Yeah. I just hate it so much. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, so like I'm originally from Fort Stockton. That's further. Yeah, you're from Fort Stockton. Dude, I have spent so many nights in the RV in Fort Stockton. That's like (laughs) one of our stopover places. I am not shitting you. (laughs) It it is a very – what makes Fort Stockton such a a place that like literally everyone knows is that, A, it's on the interstate, and it's like halfway between El Paso and San Antonio. You know, so like a lot of people have been there. But, you know, obviously growing up there, and I'm sure like every – I talk about it all the damn time, and I feel like I'm like – why am I getting back on this soapbox? Uh, but um, obviously that's very close to Marfa. <laughs> and uh, the the people who live in Marfa who are like from there are just so drastically different than the people who go and take photos in front of the Prada. Um, yeah. Which I've always had a problem too where that's technically not even Marfa. It's closer to Valentine. But that's something totally yeah. different. Um, yeah. Where... Uh, the funniest part about the whole Marfa thing is um, the people who, like, live in Marfa, like, quote-unquote, live in Marfa, but they split their time between Marfa and L.A. or, like, Marfa and New York. New York, and I'm like, yeah. You're not – what are you – no, that's – no, it's not listen. What's real at all, L- you know. Let me tell you, I, <laughs> I hate it so much. Um, I have I have a dear friend who lives out in Alpine, who's from Texas, and mm-hmm. it's beautiful, beautiful country. Um, and she complains about it all the time. But when we were driving once to visit her, we were like crossing through Texas, and I was like, "Listen, we got some time." I said to my husband, "Like, let's let's go drive the RV and go stay with our friend in Alpine." So we drove through Marfa. Now, my husband is Bulgarian. Um, 
born and raised in Bulgaria. And he, there's sometimes like cultural things in the United States that he doesn't get right off the bat. They don't make a ton of sense to him. And so I was like, oh, we're about to drive through Marfa. Like, oh my God, let me tell you about Marfa. It's this like super hip place where like all these people come and it's really hipster. And we drive through it and he just looks at me deadpan and goes, this is it? <laughs> yeah. This place is cool? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, like Beyonce posted this picture of Instagram of this Prada. And he goes, wait, no, this can't be it this can't be it. Right. And I was like, no, this is it. And he goes, no, <laughs> he just like did not, did not believe me. Um, so st I'm still on my, <laughs> um, so <laughs> anyways, um, it was just such an interesting thing, but yeah, Marfa, like, go back to LA. <laughs> yeah. The, I, I always just love the, um, you know, I can clear my head when I'm out here kind of thing. And like the, I, I come out here to decompress and yeah. there is something to that. There is like going to big bend and going out and like getting away, like kind of like what we were talking about earlier, like just taking a weekend for yourself or whatever, you know, there is that. Yeah. And I don't want to like, I guess, you know, put down people who go out to Marfa and do that kind of thing or like just get out wherever or people who go and visit the big bend area. But also like, it is the, the part of the culture. I guess what I'm saying is like all of this has been amplified by the Instagram post or like yes. the Snapchat or you know what I mean? The, yeah. the, the photo of it to not post the photo of it, of I want a photo of that, but the, uh, Hey guys, look what I'm doing. Right. You know? Yeah. Doing it all for the Insta. It's, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's a real thing. It's, um, Yeah. <laughs> um yeah. yeah it's it, craziness it's so weird though because it's like uh I, I don't know like there was uh I'm trying to think of like how my buddy put it one time he was talking about how um I guess like the high the highbrow culture of Marfa right like the these people coming in and like thinking they're doing like really great service for trying to teach like the I don't know. It's like this weird aspect of like um, these people coming in to try and teach highbrow culture to, um, for lack of a better term, like people who just don't give a shit because like they're living poor. You know what I mean? Like right, what exactly. you're showing me here it has nothing like, yeah. Um, like this, uh, this jazz album is not really helping me um, <laughs> working on this ranch. Like, I don't care. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh, there is something about like, I guess like people, uh, it makes you feel better trying to show them than like what they're feeling better. But you know what I mean? I don't know how it's like, there, it's just this weird thing. I don't know. It is. It's super <laughs> weird. Um, yeah, it's super weird. And also like the way, yeah, we could talk about that for forever. But yeah, <laughs> let me just leave yeah. it at that. Yeah. Uh, I want to go back to like you talking about the old man though, like the, the yeah. like those old men who go to coffee shops and they get there, you know, four or five o'clock in the morning. I've seen like that kind of like old guy who gets there like so damn early. Yeah. Um, yes. I always yes. love the, like the place in Fort Stockton was at this truck stop called the Comanche Springs truck stop. And, um, 
like it, it got bulls bulldozed down a couple years back. But uh-huh. like the the tile on the ceiling had like it felt like they had never been changed, and like the cigarette smoke was there from like nineteen seventy or you know sixty or whatever year. Yeah. And um, I always like what I loved about that place was these old men who, you know, they're getting out and they're going to talk business, but um, tell stories about stuff and complain about, you know, small town politics. Uh, My favorite part of that is like how, uh, obviously we we romanticize that, but also at the same time, it's like, man, the gossip of those circles is like at the same. They're not like nobler than we are because they're small town farmers. (laughs) Well, that's, that's exactly the whole thing is like, they're, they're probably, you know, complaining about their wives going to the beauty parlor and that's where they gossip. But like, it's like, no, you guys are doing the exact same gossip. Like, yes, exactly. Oh yeah, completely. Um, yeah, it just, it's, yeah, we can't, we cannot romance, we can't romanticize that, you know, (laughs) they're just as petty. Everyone's just as petty and as human as, as our own, as our own experience. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I, um, I just, it's traveling so much. I've had the chance to see like Yes. On my Instagram, do I post beautiful pictures of the Rocky Mountains? Yeah, for the most part, I do. But I've spent lots of time in places that are forgotten by the mainstream in really small towns around America. And my my husband and I, when we've been on these kind of longer drives, like, oh, uh, eastern Washington or through Idaho or through, like, uh, central Oregon or, you know, coming down through, like, the interior of California, um, it's, we'll sometimes stop over for a night and literally like we will spend the night in a gas station parking lot or a grocery store parking lot because those are the places we're least likely to get kicked out of. (laughs) And, um, and when we're looking for something to do, we'll just drive over. It's if it's a Friday night, we'll just drive over to the high school. And go walk around because that's where everybody is, is at the football game. And it's the same everywhere in America. (laughs) It's like, so, you know, and we'll just walk around and and get some PBRs from the gas station (laughs) and like hang out. And um, it's, so I've spent a lot of time in places like that, you know, and there's just as much life going on there and there's just as much there's so many stories and I mean I was a history major in college so I would say I'm partial to to stories and to history and to the past and um you can really see the ways in which time has marked marked its passing um in small towns around America that are not beautiful places where people from LA would never go or (laughs) never stop and I think those are the places with the most interesting stories. Now I I've never been a city girl or really attracted to to cities and there are just as many stories there, of course. But for me, it's like finding the stories kind of out in the wild and, and seeing these places that have been forgotten or overlooked in many ways by um, the rest of the world. Right. Like one of those, one of the things about that is that, yeah, population, small town population, you know, 3000, um, football game going on 
that is the most important thing happening in that little universe. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there's something really incredibly beautiful about that, about the, the, uh, I don't want to, I don't know, like the bubble aspect of that, you know, like the, um, that that's the important parts of those people's lives. And it, you know, they're by proxy in a way important to you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's so, um, it's so interesting. And, and I tend to watch because I'm a woman, I tend to, um, I tend to pay more attention to, to girls and women in settings like that where I'm people watching and I'm sitting there watching the cheerleaders and thinking back to high school and I'm sort of, um, imagining in my mind and in some ways these are just like this is just me projecting but I'm like okay what percentage of these girls are going to be moms in five years what percentage of these girls because I know there's a girl in here who has all her life wanted something bigger and wanted to get out who's going to move away and who's going to and so I'm like looking at these girls trying to figure out you know like okay, like, what are your futures going to look like? Like who, which one of you is going to get out? Which one of you is like, you know, um, which one of you is going to stay here and be incredibly happy because that is just as valid as the story of getting out. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, I, I just kind of sit there and let my mind wander. (laughs) That's really like, honestly, that's kind of where I get a lot of my characters or my, or my stories is just going through places and imagining the stories that are there. Um, and yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's why I like, um, it's really never brought up as far as like one of the, the, the all time classic TV shows, but that's why I love Friday Night Lights so much. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you, if you, yes, if you watched, but, like, I, I, I have not watched very, the whole thing, <laughs> but yeah. I did watch the first season. Yeah, yeah. There's something just very familiar about all of that, you know? The, yeah. Yeah, wanting, there there's is somebody wanting to get out the the being comfortable the all the the quote unquote roles that these people play. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, yeah, I, I think like that show. One of the reasons that show is so powerful is because it is telling these stories back to us, and there's so much truth in in many of those stories, um, and and why it's powerful. Um, and as like, as much as, um, you know, creators in Hollywood are trying to write innovative stories and as important as I think those are, um, it's also, I think just as important to tell the stories of, of people that are not as necessarily glamorous, um, and that are (laughs) kind of like, um, the sort of common rural American experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, the one other thing I wanted to bring up with with Traveling Mercies is that how much has been, um, I guess, uh, informed by your traveling, right? Like there's a lot of songs that have the, and it, and it all relates to what we've been talking about, but like the 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 unglamorized aspects of, of being a touring musician, um, you, you do talk about the, about the um, kind of like um, living in other people's homes for like these little brief moments, or like being in the the green room or the 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 whatever venue it is, and just kind of feeling 
that obviously like just even pulling it from the song like those borrowed rooms um what yeah. are, what about like the <laughs> i guess like what um where did you first i i guess start wanting to shape that part of not just this record and the songs but like wanting to tell those kind of moments you know it's funny the songs really each came to me in their own way and not presenting to me collectively as like a record and so as I kept gathering the songs that I was writing, um, eventually at some point I wrote, well, in 2017, I finished the song Traveling Mercies. Um, and then over the course of the next year, I thought, oh, this could be a great title track for the album because I've been traveling and because all these songs were written while I was on the road. And, and that all sort of, that sort of made sense to me. Once I saw the overarching theme of what I was writing, it was sort of like I was looking at the puzzle pieces and I didn't see the big picture until I was almost done. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, oh, oh my God. Oh, this is great. Like this all kind of ties in and Traveling Mercies can be the last song on the record. And I uh, I think the the main, you know, I really was just writing the songs organically as they were coming to me um, without thinking about them in terms of a larger project. Uh, and God, I hope I can do the same thing for <laughs> my next record <laughs> because writing with a sense of consciousness towards like, will this make it or will this not is um, I think maybe not, not very good for me, but um, so, but uh, you know, once I realized like that traveling mercies would be the last song and it would be sort of like the closing hymn because it was like, it is sort of like a hymn in a way. Um, like I grew up going to church. I am not a Christian anymore. Um, but I was growing up and we always sang, um, you know, we always sang at the very end, uh, right before we left. And, um, a lot of times I feel like I'm, I'm going to church or we're going to church, uh, in a way when I'm performing. And so not a lot of times I, I very much feel that way. Um, and if, if your listeners have had a bad experience with church or been burned by church, I totally get that. <laughs> but, um, I just, in terms of the fact that every time I perform for the most part, I feel like it's this special, unique and sacred experience where there's something bigger going on, um, than what I am doing, you know, mm -hmm. I feel, I feel spirit, um, and I feel connected to, um, to the spirit that we all share as humans. And so anyways, um, <laughs> traveling mercies, as soon as I knew it could be like the last song in the record, I started thinking about the fact that like, we've received so much grace and mercy on the road. Like people have, shown us nothing but kindness as we've traveled around the country. And so I feel like, you know, when you, when you wish somebody traveling mercies on your way, um, you hope that the people that they meet on the road will meet them with kindness and with generosity. And I wanted to sort of um, wrap the record up in that bow of like, yes, this is what has happened to us. Like kindness is alive and well in the world. Kindness and mercy are. Um, and in these times, uh, like living in these times, these really super, super divided, super contentious political times, which 
as a history, as somebody who studied history, I'm not convinced it's never not been this way because in general, like people always feel like they're living in super contentious, super dangerous, divided times. Um, But I think it's our job to find the kindness in the world and practice the kindness and the mercy um, that we would hope that we will meet and that our loved ones would meet when we send them out in the world. And so it's sort of this call to action, like, let us be the people that we, you know, if we send our kid out into the world on a journey, let's be the person that we hope they would meet on the way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but it didn't, yeah, the, the record didn't present itself to me as a traveling record at all until I sort of zoomed out and looked at all the songs and go, Oh, <laughs> this is a traveling record. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, cause I guess like one of those things about, um, most of the time when, when somebody thinks of a, of the, I guess like a, a traveling or a touring record, that kind of thing. It's, it's the, we'll, we'll just use the example of, uh, who you, you were going to be, you were going to be opening for, uh, American Aquarium, you know, yeah. like they've made really great, like that touring, uh, that like the, the the grungier side of like playing dive bars and like all of the 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 drinking songs and the fun side of of that you know like most people think of those kind of records as being a traveling record you know um, right but this exactly is like a nice, yeah, this has been like a, a I guess like the I don't want to necessarily necessarily say like flip of the coin but in a, just a different light of of what what traveling can be you know um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I also like, like to speak to, um, you know, the transition that, um, BJ and American Aquarium have gone through, Mm -hmm. um, of becoming sober and, and, and still making music and just deeply profound and touching music and playing in those dive bars still, you know, and, and kind of turning that on its head. I do think it's been, it's cool to turn these things on their heads. Right. And that's, um, yeah. And that traditionally the kind of the traveling song or the traveling record is like, um, is often told from a male perspective in country music. Right. Um, and, uh, sort of the, um, I was like telling my husband, uh, the history, you know, of the high, the highwaymen and, um, the story, this, we were listening to the original Highwaymen song, and then we were <laughs> listening to the new one, you mm-hmm. know, by the Highwaymen, and he was so, so pumped. I, I was too, but it was cool to watch how excited he was to hear that song turned on its head mm-hmm. um, through the stories of women and how women were capturing their experiences of traveling for completely completely different and let's just be real um slightly more um noble purposes (laughs) (laughs) in the the new right um not to dismiss the older version because it's it's great for all of its own reasons and it is what it is but um i think we're living in this like amazing time where voices are becoming diversified right um and so BJ is a voice for sobriety in country music and um, the high women are the voice of four different women coming through as songwriters. And there's a, there is a diversification and a lot of energy and excitement around turning the old paradigms on their heads. And um, I think it's, 
it's fantastic. I think it's a great time to be a fan of country music. <laughs> mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, a couple of points on that. Um, yeah. With, with BJ, I think like what's so important about, um, I guess like for me personally, my connection with American Aquarium has been like, and I think this is important for people to do, to have, is the, for me, for them, um, they are a band that I have grown up with. Um, becoming like an adult, you know, the, yeah. cause when I first came across them, you know, I'm 18 and I guess like it, it's been nice that also all, all too often, like you, you end up um, leaving bands behind because they just, they're, that's what they do. And it's been incredibly, uh, it's been just incredible to see them kind of like grow with me. You know what I mean? Um, not yes. that like I necessarily, <laughs> Uh, like, like I, I obviously I'm not sober or anything like that, but like it, it, it's nice to have been able to see a transition into being for lack of a better term, just like more mature subject uh, stuff, you know? Um, I'm glad like there's bands like that, that we've been able to find. Um, uh, and the other thing was like my only problem with the, the high women is that I always call them the highway women and I can't stop <laughs> dropping that and it's so hard to like go highway women and then you're like oh, I don't mean that um what, what my what it's my... so funny it's so funny because I feel like they probably could have successfully gone either way like the mm-hmm. high women or the highway women yeah. <laughs> like that would have worked too you know yeah. the the one thing I would say though is I've always wondered this on you know you mentioned in the uh the original with the the highway man that song i do wonder like if when that was song was presented because obviously like that that final verse has the i drive a starship you know like the that the starship yes. captain. <laughs> yes. was there like Sorry, a fight over like who got that because like that's obviously like the clear like even though it's ridiculously like kind of like comical in a way uh that is the coolest verse and like, that's the coolest job. And like, I wonder if there was like a, just like a a little bit of an argument on who got to be the, (laughs) the starship. I mean, I definitely would have wanted to take that verse. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, yeah, totally. And also like, um, also as somebody who studied history, I keep saying this, but like, I think about this, it's really important not to, look back at songs and analyze them within our current cultural context, you know? Um, And so like, we can't be anachronistic um, when we look back at country music, you know, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago and, um, and sort of analyze it within our current framework. Uh, That's not really valid or fair. So, (laughs) right. Yeah. Yeah. There, <laughs> Times are different. Mm-hmm. Well, that that is something that like it's very, um, what I guess like with social media, and maybe it's been like this forever. I don't know, but like conversations have nuance. You know what I mean? And yes, it, it's very, very, very hard to just have a binary culture. Um, yeah. It, it it that's that comes with so many. It's very problematic as well. I'll say. Um, talking about the. I guess like the the diversity of uh, the I guess the the growing diversity in Americana and country. Um, the one thing that like I 
it's it's obviously a great thing. I think like you're you're learning so many more um, stories and so many more opinions on on you know what the human condition is. Like the the one thing I will have to say, like I want to like make sure people understand is that like because there is like with any kind of change, there's people who try and like hold on to whatever tradition it is, or they'll right. use tradition in 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 that way. They'll claim tradition. Um, is that like just because someone else is like has more popularity now, has a voice or like an outlet, that doesn't necessarily mean your voice is is being stomped out. Completely. You know? It's like I saw this this meme a while ago that was like, um, and this could be applied, I think, to country music. But in this way, they were talking about human rights, and they were like human rights are not a pie just because somebody gets more doesn't mean you get less. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's yeah, exactly. I think that with the diversification of voices in country and Americana, um, which is happening. And I think if we zoom out, I would say it's happening relatively quickly. It's obviously not happening quickly enough for everybody. And I get that as a woman in music. Um, And also I get how much privilege I have as a white, country singer um there are so many people who don't even believe that like that like black people can sing country or that people of color are a part of country music and a huge part of the history of country music they simply don't even know that and Mm -hmm. they don't believe it when it's told to them but um oh my god i just gave you a really long run on sentence and i can't remember how i started (laughs) um but yeah, I think we're just country music to me is about telling stories of the real human experience. And like, if I could give a definition for country music, that's what it would be for me. Um, and so I think now we're telling more stories than we used to be telling. And so we're bringing in more listeners and we're telling more and a broader version of the human experience for more people who didn't used to be part of the circle. And so I think we're widening the circle and there are definitely people who, again, think that it's a pie because other people get more, they get less, um, or they're fearful of that change or they're resentful of it. And um, I just think they need to grow the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> I just do. Yeah. There, there is, I think what, like what it's rooted in is the, in, in anything, there's a, there's this, uh, a, at least a little bit of fear that goes with anything yeah. as far as wanting change or not need, wanting change. But with country music, I guess I've always, uh, when talking about this, I've kind of compared country and hip-hop. And um, where they are so drastically different is that hip-hop has always been so progressive and on the forefront of change. And, like, you can see so much change happen within a year in hip-hop. Yes. But with country, it's so rooted in quote-unquote tradition, traditional sounds or traditional kind of storytelling or whatever the case is. Um, And, you know, you want to hold on so white-knuckled to those principles or whatever the case is. And, you know, I I want country music to have some of those principles too, but, like, it's okay to... If if we're if we've allowed bro country in, why can't we include other exactly? 
you know so yeah well and it's and it's interesting because it's like i think you're i think you're spot on with that analysis right and that is often why there's some fear um with like change and new voices in country music but then it's like you and i both know that um country music doesn't seem to be afraid of new white male voices <laughs> who are basically saying the same thing over and over again. And um, so like, you know, it, so it, and then it becomes a question of like, okay, so what is our establishment comfortable with and who are the gatekeepers and what are they keeping in and out and what are they funding and which new artists are they giving support to compared to, um, to uh, who they're not supporting and giving um, voices to. And so then, then I think also it's pretty easy to track it back to money. It's pretty easy to say like um, in some regards that like in a, in a, in a tradition that historically has been conservative in a lot of ways um, it sort of makes sense that radio programmers would just want to um, throw in their lot with the stuff that has worked before (laughs) But oh my God, right. if I hear another song that sounds like um, a regurgitated version of like um, Girl Slide On Over in My Pickup Truck in Your Short Shorts, like it's ultimately it's like, oh my God, dear God, song, like songwriters, you have got to raise your standards <laughs> mm-hmm. and not just songwriters because it's also like there are people who are writing to get cuts and there are things that are getting cut and things that aren't getting cut and it's this whole system that I a, am not a part of at all <laughs> so right. I can't really speak as an insider but um judging by what makes it on to country radio stations around the country which I frequently tune into and then have to like tell my husband like oh my god i can't do this anymore you need to change the station <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like yeah the, um, oh go ahead yeah <laughs> no no <laughs> well you know the thing is is um obviously i i'm not like a national insider or anything either but like the the there is i think the easiest thing to do is dismiss uh the people who were writing those songs as like untalented because like there are things that they do that you're like oh that was kind of clever that's good. but what it had it, what it is is you're absolutely right on the every song somehow it, it's like the if they it's as if somebody had like created an algorithm that like yeah. this needs to be in the song this needs to be in the song this needs to be in the song and that's going to make it a hit and um I don't know if you I, you said you listened to the one with Haley. I don't know if you're this far into it, but I mentioned how like um, country music used to be uh, songs that were like about adult situations. And yeah. now we're like in this, and th- what there's something really strange to me um, about like, there, there's a place for the, the songs about like being young and like, I guess, you know, trying to hit on a woman and all that kind of stuff. But it's also like super strange when it's like 40 year old dudes singing it about like being 20. Dude, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, it's so creepy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. And like, again, a lot of, a lot of people writing songs are just trying to make a living. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to make a living. And when they're sort of handed down like um, directives, maybe like, um, 
whether it's whether it's um sorry whether they're actually told like okay well this is kind of what we're looking for or whether they're just reading room and seeing what's getting cut like mm-hmm. i understand that many people are just trying to um put their kids through college and pay a mortgage in nashville which is you know not an easy thing so um it's uh it's this whole system but i think the system it's it's really interesting i i think we're watching it break down i think we're watching listeners bleed out into Americana into uh, I think we're watching the gates be torn down and and have been watching that for the past um, few decades in music with the fact that with the advent of the internet and the ability for us to connect directly to our fans and to be able to crowdfund our own albums um, to be able to release things independently it's and then there are also new gatekeepers up um, you know playlist and editorial people at mm-hmm. Spotify and Apple and Amazon <laughs> and Pandora who are, who are sort of new gatekeepers basically directing, um, you know, listeners towards musicians for a variety of reasons. And I would say that those, um, those gatekeepers seem to be a little bit more diverse and a little bit <laughs> more interested in promoting diverse voices, but in some regards, um, it's a little bit of the same. And so it's just been, you know, like when the Indigo playlist on Spotify was started, I was like, oh, okay, all right, all right. Like, I was like, yeah, like, um, I will say, I think it's really important to take a stand for diverse voices in country rather than just us all running to Americana, right? Because mm-hmm. we are, like, in some ways standing up for the history of um, the undervalued voice and the history of the marginalized people in country music. Um, And I think that's really important. Although sometimes many days it feels like a lost cause and I do feel like I belong a lot more kind of in Americana. But the crazy thing is that I know if I were to play to a completely country music audience, you know, people who only listen to mainstream country, that they would love my music, that they would leave so excited about my music. And so, um, yeah, like, it's just, it's interesting to see the sort of dynamics at play right. <laughs> in our music business. Yeah. When the, when the Indigo playlist started, you know, I, I mean, I poked a few jokes cause I mean, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, yeah. Where did they get the name Indigo? Well, that's Nobody what I was going to about to ask you. And the only thing I can think of, I, did do you have any idea of where? No, I have okay. no idea. <laughs> the only thing I can think of, and uh, you're either gonna like think this is clever, or you're gonna absolutely hate it because I feel like this is maybe what it is. Um, like indigo being like a, a wash of denim, so like denim oh. jackets. You know what I mean? Oh my god, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. And of course, like the dark wa- dark indigo is kind of like your. I guess like the more in vogue of, uh, of, of denim right now, like the darker yeah. denim jackets, the darker pants. That's oh, the, what yeah. I can think. That's the only thing oh. I can think of. Oh my God. I didn't even think about that. I think that makes total sense. And I think it was cool. I, I really like that they started that. I, um, yeah, I, I think in general, it'll probably still only be listened to by Americana listeners, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, I, I liked that they were like, these are the songs that should be getting country radio play and aren't. So we're going to put them on this playlist. Um, yeah, I think that that was 
you know, a, a good thing to recognize, um, a step in that direction. Um, but okay. That kind of makes sense. Gosh. And they didn't explain why they called it Indigo. So, um, yeah, that's what I, we're I, just, we're just going to have to guess. <laughs> yeah. That's the, where I was just like, I don't know what, um, where did they get this name from? And then I was just kind of thinking about it and I, uh, was like, well, is it, has it, does it have something to do with like denim jackets? Denim and jack- I don't know. <laughs> because like, you know who I'm talking about wearing denim jackets. I mean, I love denim jackets. Oh yeah. I have like a million oh, yeah. of them. Our LA and Cowboys. You, yeah. And you know <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> who, uh, all these artists who throw on the denim jacket. It's part of the, uh, Oh my God. I feel like to be completely honest, Thomas, I feel like the least cool person when it comes to good country music fashion, like, um, I just have like this pair of white boots that I wear with everything. And when you said like Indigo is the wash that's in style right now, I was like searching my brain. Like I was like, I definitely don't have anything in a dark wash <laughs> right now. I was like, I've always, I've always kind of hated wearing jeans in general. And so I was like, Oh my God, I am so far behind in what is in style in terms of jeans right now because all my stuff is like kind of a light medium wash. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> None like, of it is indigo. Uh, it's not like I'm like studying what's in vogue or anything like that. No, but, but like, I think you know, you're I'm right, getting a bunch though, of, in terms of the jean yeah, jackets I've seen from yeah, I get all a the bunch of uh, press release photos, you know, stuff like that. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's not. Yeah, I, I do. I'm. I am uh, interested in fashion kind of stuff, but it's. I'm not necessarily the most fashionable either. I'm just like Wrangler shirts and stuff like that. So it's not like. Yeah. I'm, Which uh, is surprisingly, you know, in fashion. And and when I, not surprisingly, but I mean, like when we're talking about this kind of return to, um, the like the cowboy look, um, I've been one of my favorite things to do when we're in these random small towns around America is go in thrift stores because like I can never find anything cool in thrift stores in big cities because it's all picked over or it's priced like so mm-hmm. high. Um, but I was in Southern Arizona in globe, Arizona and walked into this really cool little consignment store that, that nobody has told them yet that like Western wear is back in style. And so they had all this really awesome vintage Western wear and embroidered shirts and like cool pants and outfits and, um, and like jackets and, and it was all priced really reasonably. And I was like, Oh my God, I cannot let any of the LA Cowboys <laughs> know about this place because <laughs> yeah. they're going to come buy all of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that I'm like, I've seen where, it's like, I wish my, of all the, I guess, like the, the, the garage sales that my mom would have um, throughout my entire life. If there was some way to have kept all those clothes and then opened a, a shop right now. You'd would be have crushing been, it. Like my dad was just so, it was like, you know, just Wrangler pants, Wrangler jeans, Wrangler shirt, boots. But, you know, yeah. that's basically what he wore from like... Uh, like 1975 till now, you know, but, uh, and then my mom, uh, there's a lot, and there's a lot of, uh, like jackets that like, um, I don't know if we, I, if I looked in their closets in the 
coat closet kind of thing. I'm sure I could pull some out and make a killing, but uh, there's there's some jackets where I'm like, oh my god. I always remember my parents wearing that jacket, you know what I mean? And that are just kind of in style again now. And it's like, oh, oh my okay, God. Well, well, maybe your parents are always Carhartt cooler than they, jackets, they were. Um, we, my husband um, and I spent quite a bit of time in Wyoming the past two years uh, in central Wyoming. And there's this really awesome little like kind of um, thrift store in downtown Lander, Wyoming. And every time we walked in there, I mean, Jackets are like two dollars, five dollars, um, and every time, and that that is a ranching town, uh, and all around there. And uh, every time we go in there, we've gotten three Carhartt jackets, <laughs> all for like five or six dollars a piece. And every time we go in there, we find like a cooler, better one. And they're all they're all old. They're from like the '80s, but they're in good shape. And mm-hmm. one is like blue and looks really cool and one is like a black denim wash it's kind of faded and they all have the best pockets they have the best pockets (laughs) the pockets are like right up kind of close to your like stomach because they're like short jackets and they're so awesome and they're the they're so great to wear (laughs) so we have like three of these awesome old school carhartt jackets like i yeah and they're so cool, but yeah, they were only like five bucks a piece. Yeah, there was this uh, this um, feed store that I kind of worked at during high school. Um, yeah, and it was like right next to my my dad has a trailer shop in Fort Stockton, and um, so I worked kind of both those places, and they sold a whole lot of uh, clothing and stuff like that. And there's like the this is probably like the most boring story, but there is like the the one. The the one jacket that got away, you know. Oh no! <laughs> Where I was like, oh, no. there was this like one white. It's not like it was not like duster length kind of style, but it was it was a little bit longer jacket, and it was kind of like a cream color Wrangler. Nice. Uh, and uh, I I got a different jacket that was just way more practical. It was a darker yeah. brown. And of course, like I was going to be using it for like a, a work jacket. And so I didn't get the other one. And, you know, like I always look back and think like, would have my life been different had I had the other jacket? You know, because <laughs> it was just like way cooler of a jacket, yeah. you know. <laughs> oh, my God. And I've never um, been able to find that jacket ever again. So <laughs> somewhere somewhere out there, somebody is living your life with that jacket. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> They're the way cooler version of you. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to think of, uh, yeah, I didn't have oh. any, like, the, no one I graduated made it big. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> but had they, they would have had that jacket too. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So. It was for sure the one that got away. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, anyways, uh, yeah, I guess we, you know, we're going on two hours here. Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah. sure you have other, you have another 20, uh, 20 mile bike ride to get I to. do <laughs> uh, well I also have my sourdough bread that's waiting to be mm-hmm. made <laughs> yeah. so uh, um, yeah, so well, yeah I've been really really enjoying um, baking sourdough bread it's so yummy and I love bread so um, but, oh my god this is Thanks for listening to New Slang. Again, be sure to check out Traveling Mercies by Emily Scott Robinson. 
check out episode sponsors Smith Iron and Design and Wicker's Jalapeno Jelly. All right, I'll see y'all next week.